This podcast is brought to you by Toasted Marshmallow Adventures Studio. Contact them at gettoasted at toastedmarshmallowadventures.com for all of your podcast production needs. Good morning and welcome to Not Everyone Gets a Trophy with Amy and Mo. Well, good morning and welcome to our show, Not Everyone Gets a Trophy with hashtag Princess Amy and Mo. Well, good morning. Uh, I just want to mention real quick, Amy is not feeling very good. That's why her voice sounds very graspy. Oh, I'm like raspy. I'm like, yeah. I'm like radio talk show. I like it. I like it. Don't you? I think that's going to be our next adventure going into this <laughs> radio business. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's definitely on the goal list. Yeah. Within seven years, we need a radio talk Absolutely. show. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. Yeah. So um let's talk about today i know happy uh, monday happy 5 a.m i know thank you for joining us stop abusing monday love monday i love monday i'm gonna be that's gonna be our slogan stop abusing monday i don't even like that word i don't know if we should do that no okay well i'll come up with a different word yeah i think All right. i think that we should start um talking love, about these start loving before. monday you keep introducing things like it's like all your own we need to have a... <laughs> what we need are to... we resetting it right now do we should we reset no, 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 no. I think we're going with it. Okay, let's I go with it. I just think that Mo needs to stop making all the decisions. Okay, that's right. We're co-partners here. That's right. All right. Well. But yes, happy Monday. Happy Monday. Our speaker <laughs> today, um, a little bit about her. She's been working at the shelter since 2008 and 2015. She became the core director uh, in 2018, became the executive director. She got her bachelor's from Boston University, which I think it's extremely badass. Boston uh, University. Can you just say Boston? Boston. Yeah, Boston. Was... <laughs> um, <laughs> she actually uh, worked at, at the co-op as a marketing director uh, for seven years from 2003 to 2007. Um, today, I'm so excited uh, to bring in uh, Jody Peterson uh, to our podcast um, to talk about a, something that uh, everyone needs to be aware of as a community. We need to gather behind and talk about more about our homeless population and um you know i'll let her do most of the talking but basically is uh interface sanctuary um got denied to move forward on their new location uh and this actually impacts more than just homeless uh population it impacts the community neighbors you know there's so many things tied to law enforcement um i mean it goes for days uh, so good morning, Jody. Thank you so much for being here with us. Hi, Jody. Hi. Thank you for coming to our show. Thank you for having me. And I love Mondays too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You do. I just love this. Like all these people that come into our path. Yeah. Like we love Mondays. <laughs> yeah. Laws of attraction. Yes. That's They're what the I Monday say. lovers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure, we fear them. But we're ready to embrace them because yes. anything can happen on a Monday. Yes. And we're here today. Talk to us about the last, is it three months? Has it, how long has, has this been going on? Probably more Over than a year. Over a year. Yes. Yeah. And it was just last Monday where we got oh, wow. our denial. Oh. I know. So that was not a Monday that I loved. But so. that's okay. So, Jody, can you kind of like take me back to the beginning? I did a little bit of research on your project and it's Interfaith Sanctuary. Is that correct? That's correct. Can you tell me like how you got started there and what, you know, what drove that passion to get involved with the homeless community and different programs that are needed here in little Idaho, Boise, Idaho? Yeah, I mean, um, I first learned about Interfaith while I was working at the Boise Co-op. They were founding it from the ground with a group of interfaith leaders, which is how they got the name Interfaith Sanctuary. It was in response to another homeless shelter shutting down called Community House. And that shelter, when it shut down, another shelter took that building over, and it was a restricted shelter. So there were certain conditions that wouldn't allow certain people in, and so suddenly there were people out on the street who had been in that shelter. And a gentleman froze to death. And um, there was some other kind of tragic events because there wasn't a plan in place for those people who couldn't be served. And so 
our interfaith leaders sat around a table and said, we have to do something. And so very quickly, they formed what was like this moving shelter. And it went from church to church to school gymnasium. And it did that actually for the first three years of its existence. And it was only a seasonal winter shelter to prevent okay. anyone yeah. else from freezing to death. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I know incredible. San Diego does something similar. Because I used to live in San Diego. I used to work with the homeless population down there. And, and sort of like that, during the winter, they would create like this huge tents where people would just, you yeah. know, you were allowed to just park there and, and just be until the winter yeah. was gone. And, and that's they, what they did. I mean, you had a place to be by night. By day, there was no other services because these were churches that were operating churches. So okay. they had to go back to business as usual. And so they would do it for an amount of time and then it would move to the next congregation. And it was supported by volunteers and faith leaders. And then in 2008, the shelter was purchased and kind of support through Idaho Housing and Finance, the Roman Catholic Charities, and some very generous donors. And that's the building we're in right now. And it's a 10,000 square foot warehouse that's just right off of Americana, um, nuzzled up to the connector. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, when I. So I think that you can actually like see yes, it. Yes. yes. So I think I remember a few years back there was like, too many people is like overpopulated so there was like outside tents being set up is that is that the place <laughs> that is the right. place but yes. that's not why there was tents i need to tell you the inside oh, story okay okay i gotta know this 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 i gotta know along yeah. with many cars like just drunk people just hitting it right a lot of people slide into well, it so the building itself <laughs> i think the reason why we could purchase it was because most people wouldn't because there's no actual real entrance to our building yep and the connector off-ramp runs parallel to our building correct and too many people come off that exit too fast and they careen into our building and our play area was just crashed into yeah. and they put some cement barriers up but it's like we'll put a homeless shelter yeah. here yeah it's not very safe <laughs> yeah that um, sounds very unsafe yeah so there's there's always it's a high drama area you know mm -hmm. just the the area in which our homeless services have been congregated has made it harder to be in the business of solving homelessness, I think. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to touch back on that um, time where people were able to come in in the evening where they all woken up at some certain times and shoved out the door so that the churches and stuff could get back to business. I mean, that sounds harsh, but in reality, that's kind of the way an emergency shelter does respond okay. to their services. It's a night by night emergency need. And okay. so emergency shelters by definition offer a safe place to be at night. And then in the morning, they're released back out into the street um, where there's hopefully social services, day shelters, things like that to help navigate the rest of their hopefully, hours. Hopefully. Hopefully. In, in a, a state that is 50th for mental health, right? Exactly. Let's just, I'm yeah. going to throw that out there, right? <laughs> so that's the concept of an emergency shelter. Okay. That doesn't mean that's how an emergency shelter has to operate. It's just that that's how an emergency shelter was designed in its beginning. You know what I mean? Okay. And it, and it is Idaho, right? And this was years ago. Yeah, right. but it's across the country you see the same kind of okay. model of emergency shelter. It's an urgent night-by-night -night need being met. And so if other things happen, it's because we've learned more and more programming is now becoming available. And so the emergency shelter is kind of redefining itself. And, and we're kind of being asked to because the access to housing is such a challenge. And so people oh, yeah. are homeless for longer. And so in order to keep people safely sheltered and reduce trauma and bring access to mental health and recovery and things like that, you have to model your shelter around as though this is someone's home. So you okay. welcome them in and you never ask them to leave. And then they okay. find stability and their trauma reduces because every day that you send them out to navigate back to your shelter at night, there's more trauma. Well, there's of course, more, they're constantly yeah. in the mode of survival and crisis. And not being welcomed you, by many and navigating, you know, the the laws against them, you know, the loitering, the... So by giving them safe refuge and creating space for them. And Do you, can you tell me like the statistics on like the homelessness in just in the Treasure Valley? Do you know those numbers? And, well, it's or a can moving you just target right now okay. because our numbers are growing. We have new homeless because of the pandemic and because of this housing market and because of 
no controls on rental increases, things like that. We're actually, we are manufacturing homelessness now. Um, we are, we have a system that's creating more need. And, and mental health too, right? Because, Absolutely, because I mean, the strain and stress of it, you yeah. know, like you're hanging on by your fingernails, hoping that you can stay housed. And when you finally fall, it's been traumatic. And then you fall to a place that you don't understand. And the system is really daunting. And so anyone who's in our homeless system is is go- is going to be dealing with some sort of trauma. And then if it's not managed well, if they didn't have mental health issues or they didn't have addiction issues, they're not short to come. Yeah, we can we we've seen that in our yeah. own practice uh, where we work that the number of um, homeless people have increased significantly year over year since the pandemic has yeah has come around. So um, at the Interfaith Sanctuary, how many people are you able to accommodate at a time? So I'm going to answer this as the pandemic because we're different now. Okay. So before the pandemic, we were one emergency shelter and we served 164 guests a night, men and women on one side of the shelter, families with children on the other side of the shelter. And we're the only shelter that actually keeps families intact, no matter how you define your family. And so dads, single dads were able to stay with us with their kids, mom and mom, dad and dad, whatever. If you needed shelter, we kept you together. Um, when the pandemic hit and safety protocols had to be put in place, we worked to get some funding to move our families with children, our seniors and our medically fragile to a hotel. And so we run another shelter in a hotel now for about 100 guests. Wow. So we've actually increased our ability to serve more of our homeless by having 150 beds at our emergency shelter and then another 100 beds at our hotel shelter. But it's temporary which is what motivated us to look for a bigger building because we knew that the pandemic funding would not always be there. We would lose the hotel and we wouldn't have the ability to move the people we served back to our shelter because we wouldn't have the space. And, and one of the things I remember you guys doing really well is this COVID like kind of hotel, right? Because you guys almost became the hub from every single hospital of where we're going to put this person. Mm-hmm. And it was call interfaith because they have a hotel and they can they can stay there right and and i mean a normal person can probably you know go home isolate hotel but if you don't have the resources it's hard because it it came in a time where like oh covid i feel like now it's a little bit okay like all right okay all right cool but before it was like don't even get near me it was so scary like like, Like, i just remember feeling like every time i left the shelter i was just covered in covid because Mm -hmm. i didn't know like the idea of how it was transmitting and the protocol that were asked of us, like cleaning every surface, that it, there's droplets everywhere. But yeah. no, I mean, from today, like if you go backwards, like, oh my gosh, we've learned so much. And it has become, even though it's still a disaster, it's a, it, it's easier to manage now because yeah, there's just more that. information. But what happened was we had to create a response system for when someone who is homeless was tested positive for COVID because they couldn't move back into the shelter system or there would be an outbreak. And so the city of Boise convened a task force to determine who would be able to raise up this care, who would be willing to step in and the funding would pay for a hotel, but they needed someone to run this hotel and provide care, meals, supportive services, case management. And Interfaith was the only one that raised their hand because wow. no one else was willing to do it. So that's incredible. It, it, because it was scary. on top of things, it's scary, right? So scary because we didn't know if we were going to die. Like we were yeah, actually saying, I'll be in the building with someone. Everyone I serve is going to have COVID. Correct. Right. And, and it do was you, scary. Did, were, you, were you guys equipped with PPE equipment? We did. We got support okay. through the city of Boise, the emergency task force. We had PPE provided to us. We had support as far as like um, nutrition was paid for through funding. We had to get our staff trained. And then we had to like bring in a very advanced group of volunteers. They're called, they're from the Medical Reserve Corps. And we were so lucky to have discovered them. 
they're part of Central District Health's volunteer corps, and they've been in the medical fields. They they are either retired or they're in this town looking for other opportunities. And so we had our staff with the MRC volunteers that helped lift us up. And so I remember like the first intake we did, it was so scary, like wiping down the elevator and like getting all the clothes off. Like it was a big deal. I remember going back and my mom would be like, Take your clothes out there. Yes. Take your shoes out there. I will bring you a towel and you will go take a shower. No, totally. Then, my <laughs> husband, I would have to take my clothes off in the front yard. Yeah. And because he was <laughs> staying home, he's a musician. So he got locked down. And so it was even scarier for someone coming out from the wilds yeah. into the house. And so, no, it was it was literally a time that everything was unknown. And it was really scary. And I think our staff was so courageous. They just stood up and did it. Yeah. It was amazing. Which which brings me to, you know, our title of Not Everyone Gets a Trophy because I feel like Interfaith has been behind the scenes. They are the core of things, but it's almost like Monday. You guys are like Monday, right? <laughs> I almost yeah. feel like Interfaith has become Monday where, oh, we don't we don't like Monday. Oh, but if we need to do something, let's start on Monday, right? So Interesting. It, so, you know, I, I think I, I just came up with that. You know, I, I mean, that's kind of, of I, I like that. I have to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to back Mo on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I will too. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm in. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, I think when it comes down to it is, you know, Interfaith has case managers, has um, like kind of the substance uh, program that you guys uh, carry. Um, you guys carried the the hotel on the shelter. You guys have created relationships with FMRI and other. I mean, you guys were the to go people in mm-hmm. that time. Um, homelessness carries a stigma, and then you add COVID to it, so it was like ugh, like times two. Get them away. Get them away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, suddenly the wall was even higher and thicker for like how homeless would find any welcoming place other than whatever we could lift up for them. There was nowhere to go. Which, which I guess I don't know if I'm jumping to this, but. I'm so surprised that you guys got denied for this building because you guys just, if you guys just been on the back doing nothing, it's one thing. But when you're the, like the upfront. Yeah, the, you're the, like the front line. Yeah. You're the one that takes, you know, the castaways that, that nobody wants to deal with these problems. Yeah. You're the only brave people out there doing it. It's so, I mean, it's fascinating because I think. You know, they call them the opposition, you know, anyone who's opposed to an idea. And that's how they present themselves in this in this world. You know, they've been very loud, the opposition, and they have been very derogatory about the people we serve. Um, but then they name the reasons why they don't want our shelter in their neighborhood. And it's because they don't want the impacts of what they imagine a shelter will do, which is people camping in tents outside and people loitering and people flying. The sign. stigma. The stigma. What they don't understand is that's what happens when you don't have shelter. That's what happens when your city is having a growing issue with homelessness and you're not keeping up with the shelter needs. Then you have your worst fears because they have nowhere to go. So we're actually what mitigates the impacts of a homeless crisis is we are a safe shelter that's available 24-7. So they don't get that. Okay, so can you kind of walk me through like a typical day that uh, for a homeless person that comes into the sanctuary? Yeah. Um, So the sanctuary has daytime programming. The daytime programming is Project Wellbeing, which is for our mental health. Project Recovery, anyone who is working on their sobriety. And we normally do direct intakes from Intermountain, Cottonwood, and um, Allenbaugh if they've done their medical detox. Instead of having them be put out on the street, we move them directly into the shelter, get them into programming so that they have that support and a better chance of staying on track. Um, Because medical detox back out to the street immediately is not an equation. Yeah. And, and and now you know even Medicaid's not even paying more than three days for. I mean, at the most four days, and it has to be severe, and then kick out. I mean, it's it's. I know there is there's what a gap a in services. Cycle. It's a vicious. It's a vicious cycle, it especially is. for somebody who really wants it so bad. Yeah, and three days is not long enough. 
three days and then being released out on your own to try and make the right decision. And there's or just, to just triggers everywhere. Or just to survive the day with when you yeah. have nothing. Yeah. So let's do a day in the life of someone who's in our daytime programming, because that's the programming that we want to be able to provide more of. So you wake up in the morning and you do your chores and stuff like that, because every guest has a chore. Then we serve breakfast, and then they break out into their groups for well-being and recovery. They do meditation. They do their moment, like they have a discussion. And then recovery goes into programming. We're in partnership with Recovery for Life, so they actually have the counselors that come to do the one-on-ones and support groups. And Project Wellbeing is more kind of therapeutic. It's creating like a safe space to get them to reduce their trauma and start to want to try something. Even that that might be like, we'll talk about recovery after we get your well-being in a little bit better place. So we do art and music and field trips and looks a little different during the pandemic, but art is a big part and writing. And then we do groups. We have special um, classes that come in to really do some deep diving and we work hard on connecting them to meds and therapy and, and making it a routine to take care of your mental health. And so you're in with us all day long. We provide your lunch. You'll take your showers. You'll do your laundry. We might go, depending on the weather, to the park for a walk. We have a fitness class every Friday. So it kind of, it's an activity every day. It's very scheduled. Um, structure is best for them. They have their own area on the backside of the shelter. They don't actually commingle with general population because it's too triggering. So we'll do mo- movies, motivational movies. We have a garden on the backside where they do a community garden, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah, which... Which is completely the opposite of a person who doesn't understand. They believe it's it's an emergency shelter. Like if I if I were to think without knowing information, when I think of a shelter, I'm actually thinking an emergency shelter. Yeah. Where people go there, they sleep, they go out, and most likely they go do drugs, they come back, and all over again, right? There is that lack of education on our end to say, no, we're we're more than a shelter here. We're actually trying to you know, establish a routine and, and, and start from scratch and helping them through, you know, classes and, and dual diagnosis and yeah and, and providing case management to go through their appointments, at times transportation, um, because that's a big thing. Yeah. And that's that's part of it. Like the entire time that we're doing this programming, we have case management that's working around them. So as they slowly begin to express like I really want to get my ID back. And so we'll work on getting them their ID because they have no no way to do anything without that. Or I you know, I want I want to try and get my GED or I I haven't been to a wellness checkup in years. So like they eventually start asking us for the things that we really want them to do, but if we tell them to do it like I don't do anything. They're not. But if you give them the space and you let them know what resources are available, eventually they'll ask you for them. And then you're a team. And then we work together and And those are things that are hard to do. Like if I lose my ID, it's it's such a pain to just go and and do it. Yeah. Getting in line and, and it just feels like a waste of time. Right. So you know, if you add homelessness, like not knowing when your next meal is gonna be your ID tends to be like way you know, down on way the list. Down the list. Well, but just you... finding the documents, depending on exactly. like, were you released from prison? Did they not release any documents with you? How are we going to prove who you are? Like, it can be really complicated to get your identity back when you have fallen out onto the street. And without your ID, there's not much we can do for you as far as advancing you in this world until we we make you a human again. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's a big deal. So at what point, you know, throughout your journey as an executive director, you say, hey, we need to, to think bigger here and move to a different location. Like at what point did you, how, how, how did that come about? Well, can I back up yeah, yeah, to for it, your question about the tent city? Because I think yeah. that's when it was all revealed to me. Um, I was a volunteer with Interfaith for years. I did like some contract work. I did fundraising for them, but I wasn't really on the streets doing the work. I, I had the fun job of, of getting to kind of create fun events to help them keep funding in place. And then when 
it's a layered story because the reason why I do what I do now, I did go to Boston University. I got my degree in communications and sociology. I was a huge, I, I prevented, I presented big, huge events like tennis events with Andre Agassi. Like I have no background in, in this at all, but I've always ha- loved the idea of taking care of people. I was just really bad at science. So I couldn't be the nurse that I wanted to be. <laughs> So, I'm not sure I'm not great at science. I couldn't even, but like, I just had no faith that like, I would be that person that you should trust with number. Like, I'm just not good with that stuff. I'm good okay. at like being passionate about stuff though. and making change. Like I, I, I kind of knew that. You're the creative. I'm a creative. And so like, I was putting my energy into kind of creating fun for people and then doing some side work, you know, like um, helping raise money for a homeless shelter. And then. My mom got diagnosed with cancer and she fought really hard. And seven months later, she died. She was wow. awesome, incredible human being. And then a year to the day that my mom died, my dad had a psychotic break. My dad was like this unbelievable human being, so smart, took care of everyone. Like people just loved him. And apparently, my whole childhood, my dad had mental health issues that my mom didn't let anyone know about. And wow. he actually went away to hospitals and got electroshock therapy like four or five times in the time that I lived at home with my parents. But we didn't know because my mom, the stigma, the idea of people finding out he had a publicly owned company and she hid it. And so like suddenly my mom's gone and my dad's sick and and we have money, we, my two sisters and I, like we had access to what we needed, but it was very hard to keep him safe. It was very hard to get him into a bed to get care. And it was seven years of really trying to save my dad's life. And we, we, we couldn't, we lost him. And just as I lost my dad, the tent city rose up on the backside of Interfaith. And I had really been gone, staying in California, taking care of my mom and then my dad. So I'd been gone a lot, but the the tent city happened because there was a group of homeless that chose to be unsheltered that were living under the overpass across from road skateboard park they had just found each other and like the community had found them and they would bring them food and things like that so they had kind of this thing going on but it was a blight the real estate agents were complaining and the park and rack because it was by the skateboard park like we can't have homeless here i remember it being a very big deal it was a big deal and so one day they came with like power hoses and they washed these homeless people out Uh of that overpass right and they erected a fence put do not trespass but they didn't have any solutions they just said get out of here and so they picked up their stuff and they walked behind and they created cooper court camp behind our shelter and they got tense and they had nowhere else to go. They didn't feel like they had anywhere to go. They didn't have the ability to go into a shelter, but no one knew who they were. They were just those people who were over the, and no one represented them. They gave them no voice, but they just gave them that distinction of they're homeless, they're dangerous, stay away from them. And so I didn't. I actually, one day when I got home, it was super hot out and I had water in the back of my car and I'm like, I'm just going to go back there and see if I can see who these people are. And I got out and I opened the back of my car and I had some flats of water and, you know, people came to the back of the car and they're like, oh my gosh, are you bring us water? Thank you. Would you mind if we took some of this to our friends? They're not feeling very good. And like, they immediately went to go serve others within this community that their kindness is pretty raw. And so the people who were back there, they had some pretty significant stories about why they weren't in shelter. There was a lot of mental health. I could like see my dad and so many of them, you know, it was really like, oh shit, they look just like my dad, but my dad had extended health care and a house and twenty. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and it was still awful for us and him. And so now it's like these people have nothing but each other. And that's why we're, they're traveling in a pack because this is who they have. This is who they trust. That's their community. That's their community. And yeah. there was same-sex marriage. There was like a man and a woman was living in a tent because at the shelter, you have to be a family. 
So if you don't have a child, you then become a single adult. And this was actually at Interface Sanctuary, and their baby had died. And so they couldn't stay together, and the woman, like, they needed to be together. So they moved out into a tent in the alley so he he could hold his wife. I mean, it was that raw. It was that stark. And so... I realized that in order for us to help them, we had to like build support around them where they were. And so why not help them there? Like bring supportive services, bring medical care in and like make them feel safe. And then maybe we can find better places for them. Or maybe they'll feel less traumatized to go inside a shelter because they have gotten to know the people in that do this work. But and I wasn't working for Interfaith then. Interfaith would not let their staff work with the people in the tents. The city of Boise was basically saying, no, they have to go. They have to go. The Boise police were coming there every day and threatening them. There was a group of people that would come and support them. But eventually, they just disbanded that that community without really much of a plan. Um, but did, it was Did Interfaith ha- ask them to leave? Interfaith wouldn't support them at all. And but I hate didn't. to say that about the agency that I no, work for yeah. now, yeah. but well, right. I mean, they but I'm just hired like at security. That, at that time, when they were staying right behind the shelter, did they ask them to leave or they just kind of just didn't It wasn't help? theirs to ask because yeah. it wasn't their property. It's okay. actually AC, ACHD and ITD owned the property that surrounds that shelter. So we had no jurisdiction over it. It wasn't even them trespassing on our property. It was just that they settled behind our shelter. Oh, okay. Because I thought it was just part of the deal. I know. <laughs> I know. Most people thought that, oh, this was like an interfaith sanctuary thing and, and were blamed for it. But they actually didn't want me to even work for them because I was part of And it's it's held and against me now. now you're running the place. <laughs> it's progressive thinking, right? Well, yeah. I learned everything there. That's why I wanted to go back there because I learned so much from them. And so like every program that you see that lives inside of our shelter now was really determined and defined by what the people in the tents taught me of how to make the shelter a more usable place for everyone. And so like they were they were my teachers and I just listened. It's like your first child. They teach you everything. They teach you how to parent. Yeah. I mean, I actually ended up doing a TED talk with a, a guy that I met out in Cooper Court whose name is Bodie, and he had been released from prison like 16 years before without any documentation. And he asked me one day if I would help him get an ID. And he he and I spent seven months trying to get his identity back. Seven months? Seven months. And it's a crazy TED Talk because it like takes you through every ridiculous thing like you have to have a photo ID to get a photo ID. Oh my gosh. I ran into this problem <laughs> yeah. with my daughter. Oh, yeah. I'm like, how do you get an ID without, without an ID? ID? <laughs> what the actual F, F is happening? It's like, let me go get myself arrested real like, quick on is... Ada County so you can see who I am. But they won't even accept no, that. No, they won't. No, no, they no. They won't no. take your iDoc card. Oh no, no. It was, it, it was insane. My my daughter, like, she, she went through a lot of struggles and she has her own mental health issues. And she was, you know, just trying to get motivated to get her life together. And she was getting a job and she had dropped out of school. I couldn't find a school ID anywhere. We had moved to a brand new house. I, I literally had everything thrown away from a storage unit and not by my choice. Ugh. So I have no, no yearbook photo. I have nothing. I have to order a social security card, which is a pain as well. If you I don't, know. If you, if you don't have it. a photo ID. If you don't have a photo ID. <laughs> it's during a pandemic. This is, this is like, I'm on fire. Yeah. I'm like, she's my daughter. I gave birth to her. This I, like, I can validate her. Uh, yeah. Like my, like your word is not good enough. Yeah. And so she, you just feel ho- like helpless. Like, oh my gosh, how do and people- And mad because yeah, it's furious. ridiculous. It's so, ridiculous. So I need an ID to get an ID. Isn't that what I'm freaking here for? <laughs> I need for you to help me. God. I know, I know. How is this a thing? So it, yeah, I, I can see where that you're coming from. And yeah. Then, and, and that's like thousands of people on the street are oh on the God. street because they can't get an ID because it's that convoluted a system. And it all became more complicated after 9-11 because they locked down security on who you are as a person in a community. And so that's actually made the system more difficult and they haven't lightened it up. So 
Like things have got to change. It would change. be cool if they couldn't arrest you if you didn't have an ID, right? <laughs> it would be kind of cool. I guess you can't confirm who I am. Well, it ended up being the, you know, the entry, the intake form that they do at the prison is very thorough. It's like literally verifying who you are as a human. It's got your social security number. It has your photo. They take your photo. It has your tattoo markings. Mm-hmm. It has um, a description, height, weight, everything. And it's the one thing that they had on file that I was actually able to use finally to get Bodhi his ID. Um, But it took seven months and it took a lot of help from people in the Idaho Department of Corrections. Like it's crazy. And that's like, that's why it's so hard to get out of homelessness and why it's so hard to not fall into homelessness. All these hoops that the system has created has made it really difficult to like maintain. Right. Because you can yeah. only get so far. Right. right. I, I mean, it's just okay. I mean, uh, the stress of getting ID, getting an ID, it shouldn't see, seem that big of a deal. But oh, I've experienced it. Right. And, and you I know. I just wanted to flip them the bird and be like, I'm out. I know. I'm going to give up. But you can't because I you want you your can. daughter to have a chance. How are you have a job. Yeah, how are you, you going to go back to you can't give up. high school? How are you going to, yeah, like, how are you going to get a driver's license? Yeah. Like, how are you going to do any of that? You're not. You're not. Yep. You're not unless mama fights as hard as she can for you or someone cares enough about you that they will fight hard for you exactly. because most of those people out there, no one's fighting for them. And that's what our job is well, now. Uh, people don't even know they exist. They don't want to. I yeah. know. I know. So, I mean, that's kind of like the idea of you need an ID to get an ID. It's that frustrating trying to realize that the planning and zoning commissioners denied us an application for a conditional use permit that was written for a building that was conditioned to be used as a shelter. Okay, one of the things that I do have to say, the irony of of people wanting to help but not being in a position to help. Um, you know, this this building you were trying to buy, it's off of State Street next to uh, Flying Pie. And it used to be the Salvation Army. The irony of of that is that <laughs> you oh you can have somewhere where we can you know donate dump our stuff and and, and actually pretend to some extent that it's being helpful. But if you're gonna put a shelter there, no way on earth, right? That to me seems like if if there was a daycare there be or a school be. Maybe I understand, but the irony of that you had a Salvation Army there that for did you. Family services and shelter. Right. I know that's what it was built. It was built in 1974 to provide help to people in need. It was a service center. So to it, me, it's, the it's building crazy. there's four zones in the entire city of Boise that can be cited as a shelter, and there's one building that was available for sale, and it's the one we bought, and it was denied in planning and zoning. Okay, so you've bought the building. We own and, the building. Okay, and you, so you sold currently... your old building. We sold our building to buy the new building. <laughs> okay. And now they're like in this limbo because... So are you even able to provide services for yes. homeless right now? Okay, good. the person that we sold our building to, um, we sold it to him specifically because he's letting us stay until we get into the new building. And okay, so, so we, you, you will get into that building. I think we will. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We love I Monday. We, we, will. Will, we will get in there. <laughs> I see no reason why we would not be in this building. Um, I think that loud voices of. So I why why does uh, why is planning and zoning shutting you down? If this is if this is a zoned area to be servicing people in the homeless community, because there's a group of opposers who have flooded planning and zoning, city council, the mayor, with letters of hate and anger and threats. If you let this shelter happen here, we will be mad. And this is why you can't cite this shelter here. And they've done this disinformation campaign and it's been so ugly. Like a lot of people who have been in the process of getting buildings approved and things like that, they've never, seen such vitriol in their lives. It's so focused on hate. And this is one of the largest 
planning and zoning packages that they've ever had. It's over 4,000 pages of people writing in to say no, mostly the same people over and over again. And they drowned out the good voices. And it scared the commissioners. And it's scared the city so much that they've been very quiet about the work we do. Even though we do everything in partnership with the city, we've lifted them up during this really crucial time. And they backed off. And they're not able to, I guess, find their words to say how important the services we do are to our community. And we've just been like in this by ourselves because this very vocal, very organized group of haters has created a different kind of conversation. And so the commissioners were too scared, I think. You know, I hate to say that too be the ones to approve this. So they like lobbed it to city council and and kind of forced the appeal to make city council have to vote on it instead. So so I was able to to go on YouTube, right? I think it was on YouTube or on, on somewhere to see uh, the meetings. Yeah. I was shocked, surprised by the lack of professionalism within. Like I was expecting very you know, kind of court oriented. It was, it's crazy. There, there was a lady who was talking, who was just laughing and <laughs> yeah. Was it gonna, the commissioner? I don't, it was, I don't know, but I, I just found it to be very childish, just very like they didn't care. Like, like we were there to talk about, you know, the food stand at a, you know, high school rally. I, I didn't, I didn't see I, it just didn't seem important. Yeah. There's like a sarcasm to them and like a flippantness. But I think maybe, you know, how people mask their discomfort by laughing and caring. I, I think they were all scared because there was 18 hours of testimony against the shelter. And I think they just wore these people down. And I think there was a nervousness. I think they they successfully in their organization broke the system that was supposed to do the right thing. So Interface Sanctuary wanted, wants a bigger facility so they can help support more people in the community as the homelessness rates are increasing. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you don't have the ability to move to this facility, um, what are you forecasting to the, the facility that you're in since you've kind of over like outgrown the place? And we sold it. And it's sold. So so where these like where will these people go? They will have to go somewhere in the community and they'll spread out. I feel like that's more, that's, that would be more scary. Um, Like when you talk about someone being like dead on the side of the street, uh, being frozen because they don't have anywhere to go, that that's scary to me. Um, But that we just have people that are desperate now that are flooding out into the community. Is that what you forecast? Like what, what do you see? I see that. I mean, when we first started the process, I never imagined it. I, I didn't think that there would be any issue with us moving on a busy main street. But now I have to look at those realities. I have to consider plan B's because we can't let that happen. I mean, we literally have babies under our care. We have 80 year olds who for the first time can receive home health and hospice because we have a hotel where you can you can get care like that because there's privacy. And so like the programming that we've been able to develop has lifted up people in so many different ways that that's what we saw in this new building was we'd be able to keep intact. We'd have a medical dorm and we have a medical clinic designed in it and we have private rooms. We have hospice rooms, which were the only facility that's ever really been able to help someone end their life gracefully. We've we've had three different homeless people leave peacefully and gracefully because we had those private hotel rooms, you know, so we've seen what what we are able to do, but we can't do it in our 10,000 square foot building with no privacy, all open dorm. And so we imagined it into this building. Um, we didn't imagine that anyone would have a hard time with us taking care of 96 family members and then 104 single men and women. That's the that's what this shelter is designed to do. 205 guests. Um, they say it's too large. They say it's a warehouse. They say that we're going to destroy their neighborhood. Um, I'll figure out a plan B. I will. Um, I just can't go there yet because yeah. I, I yeah. have time. I won't. Yeah. I won't let it happen. It will, it will distract you from plan A, which is <laughs> well, what? it paralyzes you. Yeah. You know, like yes. sometimes I wake up and I'm like, oh my god, because like 
did I like I started going to trauma counseling because I kept going like, was there a different way I should have done this? Should I know? But there's not there's no crystal ball like we were doing the right thing the whole time until it wasn't the right thing for a small group of people. And now we've put people that we love at risk. So you and you have bought the building. You have funding to be able to provide these services for the homeless or people in need. Yeah. And all you need is someone to sign off of it and say, just go with it and help our community. Yeah. And there's just a group of people that's kind of. Yeah. Because of location, right? It's a great location. It's a perfect location. It's on the main transportation line. It's like walkable to grocery and drugs. It's the perfect location. Like when we were able to buy it, it was like a miracle. Like it was the greatest thing. Like, I can't believe this is available. And we could afford it. Because it was like before that market exploded uh-huh. and it had been sitting on the market for a while. Yeah. So we were able to buy it as a, we're just a local nonprofit that only works off of private donations. So it's not like we were going to have like millions of dollars, but we raised that money, um, you know, through partnership and we bought it and it was like, we, we did it. And then we got slammed, slammed. So, so what's, you know, you said you got slammed with a lot of people who were against it. How do we come at like from how do we raise from from a different angle with the community and say this is how you guys can help? How do we raise awareness to this? How do we put more pressure on yeah. the people as much as people who want don't want it? How do we put as much pressure from the other end? I think that right now where it matters is you have a city council person, right? You know, you guys are obviously not in the city of Boise, but I bet some of your listeners are. And you voted for one of those city council people to do the right thing. And so letting your city council person know what you believe the right thing is so that they feel more confident in voting yes, because all they have right now is that vibration of no, 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 not in my neighborhood. They have to know that the larger community supports this and that this is not a political risk for them, because at the end of the day, it matters what your voters want you to do. It makes it easier for you to do the right thing. So I need people to talk to the people that they vote for and that they support so that they know that they they are very much in support of the shelter. Right. I'm really impressed by like your journey to getting to Interfacing Shuri, <laughs> Thank where you. it all started and like why you're so passionate about it. I'm I'm hoping really good things for you. Thank I, you. I hope that the people that are listening you know, just think of your loved ones or people that you know or they know that are are struggling with the financial burdens of the, of the pandemic and what what could be a situation that they are in or could be in, and how we can hopefully raise some awareness to help you get to where you need to be. Thank you. I think you're doing great things, Jody. Thank you. And, and I hope that you find whatever it takes to continue going because it's a lot. It's a lot caring that component of like being the the main person at times the the face of interfaith so i hope that you find whatever it is that you do to fill your cup you know what i do i go to the shelter and i hang out with our guests and it fills my cup and i remember why you fight so hard yes (laughs) because they're remarkable and so like i i have it right where i work so that and running in the hills and i'm good i i'm super I'm super strong when it comes to this because I I, I, I know the truth. You know what I mean? I, I just have to do a better job of making sure that people understand the yeah. truth. One thing that I would say is when things get hard in my life, rather than like getting all depressed and mad, I always say to people, to people I, I talk to is try to enjoy as much as possible because you can learn so much from it. Yeah. It sucks. But if you understand that you're like, I always say the bigger, the mess, the the bigger, bigger the the transformation. transformation, It's true though. It (laughs) it is. It is like every transformation has led us to our next place, right? Like where we end up, even the lessons you're learning with your daughter is going to make you greater at everything else that you do. Because when we learn to overcome, we get better. We can't help it. So I agree with that. And the work you guys do, you know, you're overcoming all the time too. So here, here to that. Yes. Well, we're always looking for new ways to help out the people in our community. We're really passionate about mental health and yeah. Invite us services. if you if you do any events, whatever you want yeah, us to do, we'll, to we'll be there. 
Um, if you look on our Twitter page, on our on our main page, uh, not even with the trophy.com, I've I've tagged your video. Oh. Um, I've spoken about it. I put it on my LinkedIn. Which one? The <laughs> TED Talk? Uh, no, I, I, oh. it, it's the one that you got uh, after the video when you talk about being denied. Oh, that sad one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Monday video. <laughs> the Monday video. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything. And, and I've seen people, even at work, uh, that have retweeted it or re, re, um, reposted it. So. Uh, if you're listening to us, if you're one of our listeners, um, uh, please join us in, in, in making this uh, more aware. Yeah. Um, because we need that. We need more of the momentum of uh, of creating that transformation. Yeah. And knowing that you're part of it, like everyone in this community actually can make the difference. It's not just like, you know, it's not just interfaith. It's the voices outside of interfaith that let our community know that this matters, that you want people to have access to mental health and things like that. It's you are part of the solution if you're actively talking about how important this is to you. Yeah. So Jody, before we go, how how can people reach out to you to support you? How can they find you? They can find me. Um, they can go to interfacesanctuary.org and just email to info and that comes to me. Um, if they want to talk directly to me, they can actually call my office number, which is on the website. I'm available to answer questions. I'm very personally involved. And so you actually get me on the phone and I'm... I, I come out and talk to groups, churches, whatever, just to help with clarity. So I like getting in front of people. All right. Do it, do it, ask your question. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we go, Jody? Is that the question? She, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She always has <laughs> any that famous quest. quotes, anything, yeah. any words of you know positive affirmations, anything, anything, anything you, you that, got, anything you want to give that that we missed or we cut you off because sometimes we do that. I don't feel like you did that. I felt this was very cathartic. It was actually nice to kind of introduce myself and my organization to you because you're new to my life. And Mo, <laughs> I know, but it. Um, I think I think podcasts are a really wonderful thing. Um, how do I get this to my people so oh, that we'll, we'll make it happen? Okay. Our, our producer uh, Chris with uh, Toasted Marshmallow Adventures. Um, we'll send it directly to, to okay, your person. Good. Yeah. I think I just want to leave you guys with this because like you were saying that we get empowerment at the end of this. And I think that there's something that needs to be revealed in the process that we've been asked to do as a homeless shelter, as opposed to any other business that would try and cite their application in that building. It's discriminatory and um, political and not right. And so we're making a documentary and we're filming every step of it. And I think that the empowerment will be in revealing the truth of this of this process so that it doesn't happen to someone else. All right. Let's hashtag Netflix for this. You should get Netflix involved in I would love that. If you get somebody that big. I know because the story has to be told. Like this is dirty business and this is about taking care of people. There's no, there's no place for politics in this. This is just about... It's a humanitarian crisis, and we're all responsible to be engaged in a positive way. It will not hurt you. So there was somebody who commented on one of like the Facebook posts that had been homeless, that lives in the neighborhood where we're trying to move, and had seen the vitriol about homeless people. They wrote something, and like the, the thing that struck out to me was like, sometimes you have to choose to be a little less comfortable so that someone else can be a little bit more comfortable. And that's what it comes down to, is yeah. like, give a little to get a little, you know? So. Well, thank you for coming to our show. Thank Jody. you. I loved it. Yeah, we hopefully we can follow up with you so we can yeah. get the updates. So find us on Not Jody Ever Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, in the studio. Um, yeah, find us on Instagram. Find us at noteveryonegetsatrophy.com. Um, and thank you for listening in and we'll see you next week. Adios. Bye-bye. Shalom. Bye.